0: Our first scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah 48:16 to 17. Come near me and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed with his spirit. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. Also, John 14, verses 5 through 18. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence on the works of themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, And they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you.
1: Social distancing, or the term I prefer, physical distancing. It's a term that none of us would have conceived would be part of our everyday language a year ago. Yet here we are. It's part of our daily routine every time we step out the doors of our home. Everywhere we go, the stickers on the floor remind us, are you six feet from your neighbor? If you're taking an evening stroll in the neighborhood, it requires almost the vigilance of a soldier deployed on active duty, like the 25,000 soldiers who are in our city right now. As you walk, you're scanning the horizon, seeing if there's profiles of people approaching. Are they coming your way or are they going a different direction? Are they showing intent to step aside? Are they even wearing a mask as they're coming your way? And as you get closer, you're wondering, okay, is there enough room for us to pass by with six feet or do I need to step onto the street? We never would have thought to do these things a year ago. We're making all these calculations to determine if if there's sufficient space between us to prevent an infection from passing. If you don't want to get sick, you stay away from potential sources. On the other hand, if there's something we really want, then we want to be as close to the source as possible. If we want to get warm, we would draw close to the fire. If we want to get wet, then we jump in the water. The same goes for the topic of our current sermon series called In Community. If we want to experience community, we must draw close to the source of community. In this sermon series, we're looking at the role of community and how it shapes our understanding of God and of ourselves. And as we learned last week, our self identity, the what we understand of ourselves, is not shaped in a vacuum. We become more fuller versions of ourselves in the context of community. But how do we determine what that c- true community is? That's the focus on today's message, of today's message. We can often observe moments of connection and community because we are relational beings. We see it in the connection between an infant and their uh, his mother at birth we see it in the connection between two romantic partners we see it in the generosity of someone who pauses to make eye contact and smile and share a moment with a stranger on the street we see it in times of crises when it doesn't matter whether you're a black or white republican or democrat citizen or undocumented immigrant If there's someone in need next to you people step up to help one another we experience glimmers, uh, glimpses of community and connection in our day-to-day lives, but the Christian story tells us that these are mere reflections of true community and true connection found in God. The three persons of the Trinity exhibit a perfect community of three. But what exactly is this mystery of divine community of three? Throughout Scripture, we are given glimpses of each of the three persons of the Trinity, as Amy uh, introduced to us in the children's story. They're often referred to as a single character, as Almighty God, or Lord God, or Father, or Jesus, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. And on occasion, we catch references to two persons in a per- of the Trinity in a particular scene, like we explored last week, when Moses encountered God in the burning bush. And very rarely, especially in the Old Testament, we see references of the three persons of the Trinity together in the Old Testament But an example was heard in Isaiah 48 that David read for us. When, in verse 16, it says, And now the sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed with his spirit. This is what the Lord says and continues on. In verse 16, the speaker is unidentified, but could be understood as God the Son. He identifies the Father in the title sovereign Lord and his spirit as having sent him. These verses identify three distinct persons who are God, without denying the fact that there is only one God, and this happened before Jesus ever arrived on scene. In the New Testament, Paul's benedictions often invoke the three persons of the Trinity, and in the passage we just heard, uh, David read for us in John 14, Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father and how they would se- uh, they- God would send an advocate the three persons of the Trinity again, that are constantly pointing each one another out to one another. Throughout Scripture, we are given these depictions of God having a plurality of distinct persons, yet there is overwhelming support for the unity in this repetitive invitation to Israel, saying, Here, O Israel, the Lord is one. The doctrine of the Trinity has been a fundamental distinction of the Christian faith. And as much as the Trinity has been reflected upon through the ages, understanding it, completely at least, remains a mystery. Analogies come up inadequate. And some have said the Trinity is like water. The three forms of ice. Are three forms. There's ice, there's water in liquid form, and water in vapor. But if you push this to the extreme, it, it leads to a heresy. Because it's what's called modalism. God is not three distinct persons, uh, God is not three, di- uh, not, not three diff- expressed in three different forms. There are three distinct persons. The Trinity often, as uh, Amy mentioned, is, is like the sun, some have used, right? There's the star, which generates light and heat. But this was fought uh, over at, at the beginning of the founding of the church, which, if you push this to the extreme, it leads to Arianism where Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations or derivatives of the Father and not one with him, which is not what the Scripture says. The, the, the example of the apple that we had uh, is, is similar to what the Irish saint, St. Patrick, used, tried to convey in the Trinity as a three-leaf clover. There's these three parts, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit. Or like the apple, there's the flesh and the skin and the seeds, Pushed to the extreme, this leads to the heresy of partialism, where each person is only part God. So, we're not saying that these are not helpful, but there are limits to the analogy, so we can use them, but understand the limits. All metaphors and depictions will be limited in conveying the eternal nature of God. Some have tried to use diagrams and art and geometric things to communicate Who God is and the relationship between the Trinity. But probably it's best for us to heed the words of St. Augustine, who once said in Latin, si comprendis non est Deus. In English, that means, if you have understood, then what you have understood is not God. If you think you've come to a complete understanding, then it probably is not completely the understanding of God. At the same time, the mystery is not unknowable completely. We may come to know God the Son and discover God the Father and God the Spirit. We may come to recognize God the Father as our protector, as one who holds everything and discover eventually the atoning work of God the Son and the personal transformation work of God the Spirit. Whatever person of the Trinity we first encounter, we find that it's a lifelong revelation of the other persons of the Trinity because God is a community of three persons living in this eternal dance with one another. They are constantly showing off the other persons of the Trinity, if I might say it like that. Christian thinkers since the early church have attempted to describe this relationship of the three persons of the Trinity with the Greek word perichorisis you notice, it's made up of two... It's a compound word. The first part is peri, which, which means around. And core is uh, found in the English word choreography. This term was originally coined by 4th century church father, Hilary of Poitiers, to describe the three persons of the Trinity, where he says that the three persons of the Trinity reciprocally, reciprocally contain one another, so that one permanently envelopes and is permanently enveloped by... The other, whom he yet envelopes. They're constantly enveloping, looking at one another, dancing around one another. In Mere Christianity, the 20th century author and theologian C.S. Lewis revitalized that term perichorisis with an image of the Trinity being a divine dance. The image conveys how God is the source and definition of love and personhood. When people refer to the phrase God is love, as the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4. Often, I think what they mean is that love is really important or that God really, really wants us to love. And that's true, but that's not what that phrase means. God is love doesn't mean that God is the feeling of love or vice versa, that when you experience the feeling of love, that that, that itself is a sign of God. It may be, but it's not fully. God is love also does not mean that love is some impersonal force or energy that you tap into. God is love, at least the way the scriptures uh, reveal to us, means nothing unless God contains at least two distinguishable persons. You see, if God was a single person, then before the world was made, God was not love and is not love now. The Trinity is a uniquely Christian doctrine that explains how God's being, the very essence of God, is love. And Lewis writes this to describe it saying God is a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, and almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the father and the son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. It's as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. We see this image of the mutual enveloping and delight in the scenes of Jesus' baptism, where the gospel writer Mark reports how God the Spirit descends on God the Son, while the voice of God the Father is heard declaring, you are my Son, with whom whom I love, with you I am well pleased. The Father and the son, Spirit's attention is focused on affirming and delighting in Jesus, the Son, showing him off, in, if you might say like dancers locked in on their partner to make their partner look the best in a performance because in doing so they might look they look the best as a unit and invite admiration from all and this leads to one significant implication of divine community this community of 3 divine community is not meant merely to be admired and imitated like dancers on a performance stage it's meant to be shared There's a big difference between the divine dance of the trinity and any other dancing unit. If you're a dancer, a dancer will know that the beauty and the coordination between two partners, like this image here, is built over years of individual training and years of practice together. The routines that audiences see at gold medal competitions have been honed over multiple uh, competitions before that. And arriving at that perfection in performance is pretty exclusive to them. I doubt that these dancing partners on the screen here would invite me to join them on their performance stage. But that's what God does for each one of us. The members of the Trinity invite us into this dance. Experiencing true community and knowing true love comes from participating in and getting as close to this pulsating energy of the tri-personal love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our love is preceded by the divine love and also proceeds from it. All other experiences of human community and love are derivatives of love and community found within the three persons of the Trinity. That's why we need to draw close to the source of community through the body of Christ. We have opportunities like 3D, the deep dive dialogue happening after the service on Zoom. I hope you can hop on today as Jerry leads us in the study of Colossians to delight further in the Son and the Father and in the Holy Spirit. And you might say, well, I've shared some of the deepest community, with what I felt is deepest community in relationships with people who don't profess to be Christian. So what do we say about that? That's certainly possible. When a community is built around a shared interest or goal, or, uh, and especially when it's made up of, relatively well-adjusted people who think similarly and are able to navigate conflict well. These qualities certainly make community easier, experiencing it, because you already share much in common. And in some cases, you might say, I've experienced the worst community from people who call themselves Christians. I've experienced judgment and broken relationships from them. And in this case, it's an example of community where members are still works in progress, which is inevitable in any diverse community. And it's particularly inevitable in a church where people are drawn to this kind of community because they recognize there's something that needs to change in their lives. We're all works in progress. And that's what makes community challenging. So good or bad, our experiences of community are merely incomplete derivatives of divine community, not because of their identifiable characteristics, but because of the source of that community. We can recognize and approach God through any one person of the Trinity, as Jesus talks about in John chapter 14. The welcome is wide open. But joining the divine dance of God comes only one way. As Crystal mentioned, reminded us in the call to worship. We are only invited to fully share in the divine dance by trusting in the atoning work of God's the Son. God, Jesus, is the one who makes us qualify to participate. It's not our bloodline, it's not our temperament, it's not our conflict management skills that qualify us in divine community. It's the son's qualifications that make us qualified for particip- participation in divine community. Jonathan King writes in The Beauty of the Lord, The Theology of Aesthetics, and he reflects on how beauty works, saying this, the existence of beautiful things requires, if you will, the existence of Of a beautifier. The existence of beautiful things requires, if you will, the existence of a beautifier. God is the source of everything that is not God. And applying this idea to human community, we might say something like this The existence of community requires, if you will, the existence of a community maker. God is love. So God is community. The Trinity is the community maker. Jesus, God's son on the cross, is the community-making agent. That's how we enter into this divine dance. And God shares that community with humans who who are inherently community breakers. We break community either through outright harm of our neighbor or through subtle self-righteousness that causes us to thumb our nose down at people who don't think or who don't look like us. The Bible calls that inclination sin. We see that inclination played out in an ever-increasing polarization of our nation's political landscape, as we've been reminded this past week. As she reminisces about her 2016 election campaign in her book, What Happened, Hillary Clinton acknowledges that calling half of Trump supporters a basket of deplorables was a factor in her loss. Thumbing noses down at others. We see the ongoing blowback of that statement in Trump supporters who name them as the enemy. Them in their minds is the liberal left and big tech who have taken over mainstream media in America. Those who stormed the Capitol saw themselves as the only true patriots of America protesting election fraud while all other, others are traitors to America. Separation. Distinction. The Christian church in America is not immune to this fragmentation either. As I observed, you know, biking around the city, and seeing the Stop the Steals protests last week and the ones before. I snapped this photo of a Christian flag alongside some other flags outside the Supreme Court. While I was driving, around, riding around, I heard lots of Christian worship music. I heard lots of Christian prayers and prophecies that worried me. They reflect this undercurrent of Christian nationalism where professing Christians mix their faith in God with the belief that God has blessed America to be superior to all other nations. And that superiority is linked to our white origins. Any Christian who does not agree with this view is often seen as having compromised their faith in God. But I suggest that it is the opposite. Christian nationalism is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Erwin Ince, pastor of Grace D.C., Recently, uh, a pastor at Grace D.C., recently released a book entitled Beautiful Community. I'm g- we're having him come and participate in the series uh, in a couple months' time. He writes in his book saying, Fragmentation, division, disharmony, and disunity are our story, but they are not God's. His is the story of beauty and is most profoundly seen in God's communal life. Fragmentation, separation, thumbing our noses down, violence, those are all our story. But God's story is community. Because God is community. The community of three seen in the Trinity runs against the human narrative of fragmentation and discord. And God shares that community of the Trinity with community-breaking humans like you and I. And that's what's the sign that we are experiencing, divine community of three. It's when our eyes find such delight and such gratitude in being welcomed into this divine community that we cannot help but welcome others into that community as well. Our hearts move towards others that are different from us. Our hearts move towards those that the world says are our opponents and perhaps even our enemies. You see, when we truly enjoy divine community of three, people who are different from us are able to find belonging and love and community with us without coercion or predetermined qualities like family lineage, race, or lifestyle. We find ourselves inclined to share community with those who believe differently from us, whose political outlooks differ from us, who hold different positions on what our country needs and how might we might spend our money. Sharing divine community means that we seek to understand sisters and brothers in Christ who might hold a different view of marriage and sexuality than we do, rather than dig our heels into what we believe is our theology. Do the communities that you find belonging in treat those who are different with contempt and condescension, or do they treat others with welcome and warmth, even if you disagree with them? Do the communities you belong to and identify with make fun of and convey a sense of self-righteousness towards those outside of your community? Then perhaps those are signs. That's a sign that you are not experiencing and sharing this divine community that God has invited you into. A few verses later in 1 John chapter 4, after John says God is love, he also says, he reminds his hearers that perfect love casts out all fear. You know, this year, I was looking forward to witnessing my first inauguration next week since moving to D.C., but then January 6th happened, and instead of celebration the way we would expect, we now have fear of violence. You know, many of the events leading up to January 6th and after or since January 6th, like the impeachment proceedings, are based on fear, fear of the other, fear of losing control, fear of looking bad before your supporters, fear of betraying an alliance, Fear of looking weak. But all fear is based on lies. A lie that America, we know, and uh, want will end if a particular president or party is not in power. That happens on both sides. There's the lie of, that the fate of the church is at stake if Christians don't hold political power. There's a the lie that your political opponent hates you. And the lie that the marginalized will not ever see justice unless we fight but those who come to know the God of Scripture live in love and live in this kind of boundary-crossing community. For Christ followers, we understand that we have been welcomed into an eternal and infinitely loving community in the Trinity God. Our belonging there is secure, not because of our values and our morality and our relational maturity, but because of our trust in the merits of God the Son. So our standing in this community This divine community is secure. And that gives us freedom to share that community without fear of loss. Friends, may we behold God in the community of three, the Trinity, and share that community generously to the glory of God. Amen.